Praise the Lord. Well, I want you to get your Bibles out. We've been uh, going through the book of Revelation. I like that. Sometimes I don't like it, if, I, if I'm honest. <laughs> Sometimes I like to skip stuff, but I don't. <laughs> I love that. You're so encouraging. <laughs> yes, that's right. I believe that every word, every scripture is, is God-breathed, yeah? You believe this too? Every scripture is God-breathed and every scripture is profitable. Every scripture, you know, when we go back to the Old Testament, you might say, what's profitable about that story um, where Lot's daughters go into the tent and get them pregnant, get themselves pregnant by him? <laughs> Boy, that'd be a crazy story. Would not be the wildest story in the Old Testament, but it would be wild. <laughs> But what's profitable about that? Well, I'm sure there's, there's, there's some things. Everything, even in, whether it be Old Covenant or New Covenant, everything makes sense through Jesus. Everything find, finds its meaning in Jesus. And Jesus said that a wise uh, steward, a wise scribe would take from his treasure's chest things old and things new. And so it's important that you view the whole scripture as a source. It doesn't mean that everything in there, you know, I, I've heard people quote, uh, characters in the Bible that shouldn't be quoted as instructions for life. Just because they said something that got put in print doesn't mean that that's what you should take for your life. You don't quote Goliath and go, hey, Gol you know, it's in the word. It's in the word that we should come out and fight him. No, I mean like, you know, God puts the good and the bad examples in the word. <laughs> so just because it's there doesn't mean it should be your favorite memory verse. Sometimes we quote guys and, and uh, we've had this conversation before. Uh, I, I've, I've had friends that, that use a certain verse. Um, and I'm thinking of one in particular where it was one of Job's friends that said this. And they quote it. And I go, well, you know, that's the guy that God said, don't listen to that guy. So I don't like quoting that guy. I don't think he's the best source because God said, you should shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. So I don't use him as my memory verse, you know? So, you know, you gotta, you gotta ask God for understanding and wisdom as you go through this, but there's so much life in his word. So that's why we can go through it and not skip anything and, and just get something out of it every day. And I've said this before, but sometimes we're gonna preach things that you know, and that's good. Because it causes you to go deeper into things you already think you know. That's a good thing. I, I learn. I learn from the very simple stuff that we still uh, preach at a, at a new believer's class. I'm still learning things. Because God's word is, is alive. You know, Jesus is the word made flesh. So, you know, we can't just think that this is a two-dimensional document. This is so much deeper than that. It's alive. It's active. It studies me as I study it. You know, it's, this, is a this is fellowshipping with, with Jesus. And so um, when we do that, you know, you just can't say, I've learned the material, right? <laughs> I've learned the material. I got nothing else to learn. Because like it or not, maybe this is not all about learning like you think learning looks like. Does that make sense to you? We think of learning as there's the stuff you need to get, and once you get the concept, you're done and you move on to another concept. But um, what about learning to be like Jesus? Could someone just tell you this is what it looks like to be Jesus? You repeat it back to them in test format, now you know what it's like to be Jesus? Or is it a lifetime of growing closer to him and being transformed into his image? You learn to be like Jesus as you walk out life. Letting, as, as the scripture says, Paul says, for this reason we labor and strive that Christ may be formed in you. I think about that a lot. Because really that's why I've got to get up and preach. That's, why, that's, that's part of my job. I've got to let that happen in me. And I've got to, I, I believe that part of my job is to see that happen in the people around me. Is that Christ would be formed in you. I've said this before, but I've found fewer, um, fewer moments more suited for Christ being formed in me than when I'm most uncomfortable. Like when someone really pushes my buttons or irritates me in a certain way, that is the best, that's the best time for Christ to be formed in me. Because I am, I'm, I've got to shift out of what I can uh, uh, normally respond to this situation. I've got to shift out of me and shift into this idea that it's no longer 
Jonathan that lives, but Christ that lives in me, that I've been crucified with Christ. And, and so he lives through me that, that I can love this person even when I don't feel like loving because Christ in me is my hope of glory. And when I think that way, then you embrace opportunities for Jesus to become bigger in you. You embrace these opportunities. You don't run away from confrontation. You don't run away from uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable people. You embrace that as an opportunity for Christ to be formed in you. And that's life, and it's good. You know, sometimes we just, life gets a bad rap. You know, I hate, I, I don't use the phrase anymore, life happens. You know, you know when someone says, uh, things were going well, but you know, life happens to you and it's rough. I get what they mean. They mean circumstances in life happen. But the word life in the Bible is, it's not just talking about your experience on earth. The word life is, is what we find in Christ, isn't it? It's, it's, it's being really truly alive. We didn't realize we were dead for so long. We came to life in him. So I, I almost hate to use life in that way. You know what I mean? Like life happens, like it's a bad thing. Because really what life did to us was prepared us for that. What, what his life in us does is it awakens us to something new. And so I guess, you know, I get what you mean when you say that. I'm trying not to use the word life in a negative way now because it's not a negative thing. Um, my experience as I walk through this, this planet, as I walk through my existence, there's going to be times where I find some, some, some opportunities for me to step back into the flesh. But thank God, when we walk by the Spirit, we see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. I want you to go to the book of Revelation with me. I, I went off on a long tangent there, and that's cool because it happened at the beginning. And what happens in the middle, that's when you need to be worried. But if it happens at the beginning, we're all cool. Revelation chapter, see, I'm making up rules as I go. This is basically Calvin Ball, uh, pulpit version. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. We, uh, we, we've been talking about this church. Now, every, every Bible scholar I listened to called it Thyatira, but that didn't sound like Greek to me. It uh, didn't sound like the Greek that I know, and, and maybe that's, we're talking about modern Greek versus Koine Greek, or Koine, but I called Spiro and Tina, I called Tina, and she said, no, it's Theatira, Theatira, right? Theatira. So I'm going to say it like the Greeks say it, and you know what? If some dusty old Bible scholar says I'm wrong, I'll just point them to the Greeks that I have in front of me and say, they say it's Theatira. <laughs> and you could do the same too. We all know some Greeks, right? Uh, if you'll remember last week, this was a church in some crisis. If uh, Pergamum had fallen off a bit, if Pergamum had flirted with idolatry, Theatira had just is now celebrating anniversaries with idolatry. They had gone to the next level. They really had some issues, particularly with one particular woman that was uh, teaching people it was okay to uh, commit adultery, it was okay to participate in idolatry. All these things were, were being not only permitted but promoted from uh, positions of authority. And Jesus uh, doesn't just say, doesn't just say this woman, you know, knows better, she should do better. He actually says that she, he gave her space to repent, and she hasn't. And if she doesn't repent, there's going to be some serious repercussions. That's not comfortable to read because we love people. But know this, you couldn't possibly love people as much as Jesus loves people. So, you know, sometimes we think that we love people more than God does, right? You know, that, that well, God's just not as compassionate as I am. Wrong. <laughs> he is so much more compassionate than you, you ever have been or could be. Um, and so understand this, that everything Jesus says and does is out of that love. He is love. And so he, he says this is what's going to happen. But I want to I get back to the, to the end of it where we left off in Revelation chapter 2, verse 25. He, he just finished saying, those of you that don't hold to this teaching, to the deep things of Satan, I place no further burden on you. So I'm not going to add anything to the burden there. If, if you're not participating in this garbage, good. He says, here's what I have to say to you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold on tight, hold fast until I come. That's such an important thing. We're, we're constantly looking for new information. We think that if we have some new information, it'll fix everything. Right? Like if I read one more book, if I found out one more key to this or that, my life would be solved. But the truth is, sometimes it's the truths you know that just need to get deeper in you, rather than finding out a new piece of information. You know, we just think that that'll fix everything. Most of the time it doesn't. 
It's the things you know or you think you know that haven't gotten so deep in you that they're affecting you on that level. So he says, hold on tight to what you have. Hold fast to it. Hold on tight until I come. And then he says this in verse 26. And he who overcomes, and of course, uh, women, you know that, that uh, he meant that in a pretty neutral way. So he's not just saying the boys that overcome. Of course, we all. To the one that overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end, to him or her, I will give authority over the nations. And then he quotes uh, from the Old Testament here. And that's important because he's, he's showing you that, that when he's quoting from this Old Testament passage, he, this Old Testament passage is prophesying about Jesus. But now he somehow tied you to this. And he says from, from this, this verse, he says, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that's, um, that's a really big thought. I, I've admitted to you before that for years I read these last parts of the letters to him who overcomes. It just kind of glazed over it and said, uh, the one that overcomes is going to get good things. Right, Because I honestly didn't know what it meant to eat from the secret manna or have a white stone with my name on it. That had no meaning to me. What will I do with a white stone on my name on it? But then I started to realize that when he says uh, to him who overcomes and when he says uh, let, him, let the one who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That when Jesus says let the one who has an ear to hear, he's, he's, he's not just saying either you have it or you don't. He's encouraging you to open your ears and maybe what the scripture says in Psalms, incline your ear, lean in. And so I took that to mean that probably I shouldn't just glaze over stuff because I didn't understand it. That if I really had an ear to hear, I should study it out until I got some understanding and ask the Lord, Lord, give me understanding. And there's still some things, I've said this to you and I'm sure you feel the same way, that there's still some things I read that I don't have complete, 100%, I know what this is talking about. There are times where I just have to say, I think I know what this is talking about. I believe I know what this is talking about. And I believe that God will further reveal that to me as he does to you through his Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean you stop trying. It doesn't mean you go and just get an easier translation. I've got nothing against all. I have all the translations. Have them all on your shelf. I'm cool with that. But know your reason for it. Do you know what I mean? There are some things that are difficult because you're reading out of like, Old, old English, and I get that. Find something that you know, speaks the language that you speak. But sometimes it's not a matter of language. Sometimes it's a matter of the concept. It's not that you need to understand the language better. It's that you have to be a little spiritual to understand this. So Peter said about Paul's letters, he says, Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. He doesn't mean that Paul used like really high Greek I just don't get it. I'm a dumb fisherman. I can't understand his letters. Can somebody give me the reader's version? No, he means these things are, these things are spiritual things that you have to open your heart to and really allow God to reveal to you and teach you these things. So it's not about language. So let me tell you this. I'm for all the, tra- for, I like translations. I like a multiplicity of translations. I'm, I'm of the belief, and this is a tangent, but I'm of the belief you should have a nice formal translation on hand so at least you have something without any bias. It'll all have a little bias, but maybe a little bit less bias. And then compare it. Compare it to this and compare it to that. But understand that the more you have a thought-for-thought translation, the more of the translator's opinion's kind of woven in there and you don't know where his opinion stops and starts. But that said, I, I like a lot of these new translations. I dig them. But there might be something I don't understand. And you know what? I'm thankful for a guy like Eugene Peterson that says it in a certain way and it's cool. But Eugene Peterson might be wrong. Sometimes I have to go back and I have to say, Lord, reveal this to me. And I have to dig and maybe get a couple of different perspectives and and bounce those off. So when he says, let he as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, I have made the decision that I, I can't just skip over the end of these letters. It's probably the most valuable part of the whole letter. So it's a little difficult. I'm going to say this. It's a bit difficult for me to accept 
this really cool truth that he says. And I'll tell you why. It seems like the easiest thing to accept because it's a good thing. I'll rule with him. I'll reign with him. That's wonderful. I'm trying to process how he's going to let me have the same authority that he says he received from his father. I'm trying to process how he says I'll be given authority over nations if I overcome. That's, that may sound like a, a hunky-dory thing to you, but I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here going, that's a big deal. And I want to know how that comes to pass. You know, Mary received the word from the Lord, but it, she still said, you know, I mean, it, it, it troubled her when the angel said, blessed are you among women, highly favored of the Lord. She didn't say what a nice thing to say. It, it sort of messed with her for a minute because she's asking herself, what do you mean by that? And when I read this, I go, are you sure you want to say that, Jesus? You sure you want to trust a, a human being with that? He, he doesn't say I mean, he quotes a scripture that is most definitely about Jesus, but he includes you in it. Look, look what he said. He said, he who overcomes and keeps my deeds. So he's not talking about himself here, right? Because of course he keeps his own deeds. He's talking about the people in the church. He says, to the one that overcomes and keeps my deeds, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. So he, he says it again. As I've received authority from my father, you're going to have some authority. Now, if that scripture, and we know that scripture is talking about him, he's ruling with a rod of iron. You can look at it this way, that he is telling you you're going to rule. Then he tells you how he rules. He rules with that rod of iron. He rules with authority. And then he says, now that's the authority I got from my father. As it's been prophesied, it's been told, you know this about me. He says, but you're going to share in that authority. I want you to, to think about this. The first chapter in the Bible. Anybody know what that chapter is? Genesis 1. You think I was going to trick you, but I'm not that kind of guy. You're right, Genesis 1. Somebody's like, oh, he's thinking Job or something. No, it's the first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1. Last chapter in the Bible is Revelation 22. Do you know, both chapters talk about, I mean, they, they, they give this idea of, of, of a great God, right? Uh, a great God, a creator. But you know, both chapters, Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible and the last chapter of the Bible, both speak about human beings reigning and ruling. Genesis 1, he gave them dominion, said, subject the, you know, rule over the earth, have dominion over it, subject it. In Revelation chapter 22, he says, they'll rule with me, they'll reign with me, they will rule over these things. In fact, throughout the, the, the book of Revelation, he, he says this more than once, you'll rule and you'll reign with me. He talks about a thousand year period where certain believers are ruling and reigning with him, the ones that have overcome. So there's this idea and it's a cool idea. It's not just an idea. It, it, it's the truth that, that he is preparing us for something. In fact, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight, is that really this life, as we know it, we all know that, that what we do has an effect in eternity. But so many times, it's our cultural view of heaven that's messed everything up. We all say, where are you going when you die? I'm going to heaven. What's after this? Heaven. And yet the scripture tells us heaven's part of it, but there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and God knows what else, because the universe as we know it is rapidly expanding. And who knows? I don't believe God leaves anything in chaos, right? To the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Whatever he creates, he creates to be ruled because without his rule, there's no peace. There's chaos. There's disorder. He didn't create anything for disorder. God is not the author of chaos. He's the God of order. So could it be that part of your job might be managing something on a new earth? But part of your job, and this is, there's no scripture that can back this up. You might be managing some distant planet. I don't know. I do believe this. That the scripture says, and you can go throughout the, the New Testament, there is very clearly says that there will be positions of authority in the next life. There'll be jobs. We're not just going to sit around. I've said this so many times. We're not just sitting around singing songs. 
We will worship him for the rest of eternity. This is what breaks our head. We don't know how we can do both. We absolutely can. We'll worship him for the rest of eternity, but there is, there is a task for you. He didn't create you. Why? I mean, listen, when he created the earth, he put Adam and Eve in it. He told them to rule over it, have dominion over it, subject it. He said that was good. And then sin came. So then when he says, I'm going to make all things new, he says through the last, the second Adam, I'm going to restore what was broken and lost through the first Adam. Do you think he just said that was a bad experiment? That, that didn't work out again. That's the last time I trust these apes with anything. I'm not teaching evolution. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny. That's the last time I, tr I trust these guys with anything. Or... Is that a picture of some, somewhat of a picture of what he intends to restore? We know this, that he says things are going to work out right because he's ruling with a rod of iron, right? Which means his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we, I've said this before. I'm going to say something I said a few Sundays ago, so if you were there, please forgive my repetition. But I, I, I used to believe that heaven was a pleasure factory. Whatever I liked was what was in heaven. So if I like, if I like ice cream, heaven is full of ice cream. If I like, uh, you know, I like this sport, this is going to be all this. But in reality, I said this last time, heaven's not being fit for me. I'm being fit for heaven. And when I say heaven, let's of course realize that he says I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. I'm, this next life is not being prepared for me and my desires. My desires are shifting to fit what he's already prepared. So he's changing me. He's training me for something. The more and more you know Jesus, the more you're, more you're fit, the more you begin to follow him, the more you're being fit for this next life. You're being prepared for it. Paul talks about crowns that he would receive. He talks about wreaths and he talks about crowns. We know that wreaths are a symbol of victory. They're a symbol that you won something. You know, you, you got a wreath. But he also talks about crowns. And you can say that the crowns are just a crown of victory. It's a proof that you ran the race well. But you also can make the case that a crown is more than a fancy hat. That's right. Somehow a crown means you have a level of authority. There's something you're supposed to do with that. It means that you've been given authority. We all know we'll cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. But he doesn't say you'll leave them there. Because why in the world would he give you a crown if it's supposed to stay on the ground the whole time? We cast them at the feet of Jesus because every crown is subjected to him. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's the only one worthy of that glory. And yet he entrusts us. And when you see Jesus teaching about this, you see him teaching about a master that's gone away and he's going to come back and check on us. But he also talks about what happens when the master comes back. So he tells the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents, he, he, he entrusts these three different people with three different things. And when he comes back, he gives them positions based on what they did. And it says, if you were faithful with little, I'll make you ruler over much, right? Well, you can say that the master is making a bunch of mini trips in life. And that's certainly, I, I view that as, if I'm faithful in this, God will give me more to, and trust me with more. And I certainly think that happens throughout your life. But have you considered that maybe what you're faithful with in this life will determine what you're entrusted with in the next? Because there's a whole lot, of, and we're not going to go through it all, but there's a whole lot of scripture that leads us to believe that there's going to be some people with some roles to rule. Certainly the disciples had a clue about it because their mom bugged Jesus about it. It's just like the worst way to get a job, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, no offense, but the worst way to get a job as an adult man is for your mom to bug the guy and say, my boys are good. I got good boys. Can they do this for you? Why don't we read it just, just for kicks? Um, look to the book of Matthew. And while you're turning there, I want to read you something from 2 Timothy 2. He says this, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We will also reign with him. If we endure, what's he saying here? If you overcome, I'll give you this. Now, I, you, could, you could talk about the authority we have now. I believe the authority we have now 
is, is a type of the authority we'll have then. Um, it's used as an example of Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah, it, it, God says to him, I've put in your mouth. I've put my words in your mouth. And, and those words will be words that will pluck up. They will uh, overthrow. They will destroy. They will uproot. They will build and they will plant. I've given, he says, I've given you authority over nations. So there's a prophetic uh, uh, destiny, a prophetic word that, that's been given to Jeremiah. And with that prophetic word, he's going to have control over some nations. Which is a, a huge thought. That's in this life. His words are affecting nations, right? Daniel's prayers in this life affected nations. We know that. And yet, there is a limit to that, right? Because we're still living in this state of rebellion. We're still living in this age where uh, the scripture says that Jesus is on his footstool. He's sitting on his throne until all things be made, all his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So it's not all done yet. Now there's different people who believe different things about, we quoted that scripture in Revelation that says they'll reign for a thousand years. There's people that believe that that's happening right now. There's people that believe that that's going to happen before Jesus comes back. I personally have the belief, uh, the way I read it, I believe that that's, that's after his return. We can still play nice if you believe differently than that. We can still be friends and go out to eat, and that's okay. Um, a lot of the missionaries, the great missionaries of the 19th century, uh, 18th and 19th century, were premillennialists, premillennialists that believe, sorry, postmillennialists that believed that through their missions, the gospel would spread and slowly take over the whole world, and then. The world would be subjected to the kingdom of God and Jesus would come back and the work was done. I don't think that's true simply because when I read it, this is me and you can make your own decision here, but when I read it, it seems to me that when Jesus returns and there's that judgment, um, not everybody's in line yet. Uh, it seems to me that he has to separate the nations. He, uh, not everybody's come into line. He has to put things in order. So I believe uh, that this... This time of reigning, and, and I, don't, I haven't met anybody that believes it absolutely has to be a literal thousand years. A thousand years can be, in the scripture, a thousand years often symbolized a great period of time. Uh, or an endless period of time even. So I don't think it had to be a thousand times around the sun. But there is a kingdom that's coming that the scripture talks about over and over again. It says in that kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The, the child will stick his hand in the adder's nest. It says that, that the swords will be beaten into plowshares. I, think, I believe in that kingdom. I believe that Jesus has created, will create that kingdom. And I believe we have to believe in that kingdom. I believe that, that, that many Christians in 2018 don't give much thought to that because we're so enamored in what's going on right now. But, you know, the scripture says we have to have that in mind. And it says having that in mind is going to help you do what you're doing right now. But you say my work is not in vain. This has an effect there. I'm being fit for this. I'm being trained for this. That, that this life and everything I'm encountering and overcoming and dealing with and ruling over right now is going to affect what I'm entrusted with then. So It matters. Paul said, and we quoted this on Sunday, but he said, he's talking about the sorry, resurrection of the dead. He says, so when you tell each other this, this will encourage you because you'll know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, that you're not wasting your life. See, if the goal was just to die and go to heaven and eat cream cheese, then, then yeah, just go through life, get saved, punch your ticket and go. But there's more to it than that. We know there's more to it than that because there's something inside you that says there is. And he, 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 Jesus here says to the one that overcomes, I'll entrust this with you. I think that there's a difference. I don't think everybody's entrusted with the same thing. I think there's a difference between the people that are going to be there and the people that are going to be there with authority. Right? 1 Corinthians 3 says we're all going to stand, and he specifically he's talking about apostles. He says we'll stand in front of Jesus, and he's going to show us our work. And he says there'll be work that's remained, and there's work that's burned up. And he says, the ones whose work was burned up didn't pass the test of fire. He says, they themselves will be saved as though through fire. They're not going to hell. They're saved. But there's nothing to show for their life. 
Well, you might think that's a five-minute conversation. It's over. What does it really matter? We all get our awards. We have one night, one gala. We all party, and then we forget about it. Or the one who had work that remained, what if that guy gets entrusted with something that the other guy doesn't? What if... What if this is the period where we've been entrusted with those talents? And when the master returns, he's going to see what you did with yours. And depending on what you did with yours, he'll give you either little or he'll give you much to be entrusted over. We know it's by grace that we're saved. We're not talking about getting saved. We're talking about sowing into eternal things. So let me just read you what what Jesus says. If I'm training to be a king and you're training to be a king or a queen... In some level, an under king, under queen. Man, I mean, more than a manager because he, he uses the word rule and reign a lot. So it doesn't just sound like you're like the Walmart manager. You have, he's entrusted you with some royalty. You, you've, been, you've been given his name. You've been given his blood. This is an amazing thing. So if I'm training right now to be a king and a queen, I'm not training to be a king and a queen. I'm training to be a king. You're training to be a king or a queen. Whatever. (laughs) Probably won't matter that much on the other side. (laughs) We're training for for position of authority. We're training to rule and to reign. Right now is preparing us for that. If that were the case, I mean, you look through the book of Revelation, you see how many times he says it. And he talks about the martyrs got their heads chopped off. He says, these guys, they're going to rule and reign with me. He says, these ones overcame. They're going to rule and reign with me. He's picking people. He said to his own disciples, he said, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones with me. There's a situation in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I, I, I just think it's brilliant. He's talking about how these Christians keep taking each other to court. He says, why do you guys keep taking each other to worldly courts? Instead of to the saints. So they're dealing with issues that they should have been dealing with internally. They're involving the secular courts. He goes, why are you doing that? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Well, what does that mean? I'm going to judge angels. So maybe you just think that the, you're, there's going to be a one day where we all sit there like Judge Judy. And we get angels that come before us and say, I bought that car fair and square. And the other angel says, no, you didn't. And, and Or... <laughs> do you think that's what he means? Or, or do you accept that, that word also means to govern? That's not one day of judgment. It's like a role of governing. If you considered that in the next age, you might have angels that are answering to you. That he might have you ruling over some angels. He might have you ruling over some planets or who knows what else. I'm not trying to get too far out there, but there's more than this. It's not the end. And there's more than just heaven where we sing a bunch of praise and worship songs. There's more than that. There's more than that. And we could go and we could spend three hours here and you'd miss the hockey game and we could talk about all the scriptures that back that up. But I trust that you all, is everybody okay with that? Can we move on from that or do I need to prove it? We good? All right. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, it's a real mafia moment, isn't it? She comes to him, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom... The gall of this lady. (laughs) Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. I guess if you don't ask, you don't receive. But this woman, this woman is not afraid. I I don't know what it's like to, I'm suddenly understanding why Zebedee's not in any of these stories. (laughs) I understand why Zebedee just might be out fishing all the time. I don't know. (laughs) This woman sounds like a fun one to live with. But Jesus answered and said, You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they stupidly said to him, yeah, we're able. (laughs) They don't even know, right? Like they're not even asking. That's a real good moment to to say, what do you mean by that? What cup? What are you talking about? They, They smell blood here. No, we're able. We can do this. So 
he says, okay, well, true enough, my cup you will drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. It's for those whom it has been prepared for my father. It's, a, it's an amazing and maybe startling thought that there's some stuff Jesus considered above his pay grade. He says, it's not up to me, it's up to my father. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, they're not mad that these two guys are uh, going to get, you know, they're, they're not mad that these guys thought of it. They're just mad that they thought of it first, you know, that they called dibs on these two seats, right? Um, they're indignant with, they're mad. And Jesus called them to himself and he, he has to have a team meeting. His whole, his whole team is, is now in, in strife over who's going to sit in what chairs in the next life. And we laugh at them because it seems so silly, right? What does it matter what chair you're sitting in? You idiots. <laughs> you don't understand heaven like we do. Heaven's a worship party. But maybe they understood something because Jesus doesn't say, that's not what, heaven, that's not what it's like in the next life. That's not what it's going to be like. He just says, I don't get to decide that. I think James and John's mom heard some things that Jesus had already said, that Jesus had already told them about the fact that they would rule and reign, that there would be something. So she's asking for, you know, the prime seats. Give us the prime seats, because the closer you are to the king, the more authority you have. They start fighting, and Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. See, he has to reteach them what it means to rule in his kingdom. What it means in his, to rule in his kingdom is not to exert power over somebody so that your will is done. What it means to rule in his kingdom is to serve. What it means to rule in his kingdom is, is leadership that looks totally different than what they understand. And he's telling them, you, you probably don't know what you're asking for. But he says this, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant or your slave. Whoever wishes to become among, first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I take from this that part of, a big part of what I'm going to need to train, to be prepared for ruling in the next life is to learn how to rule rightly in this life. And that means I need to learn how to serve. It means I need to learn humility. The meek will inherit the earth, he says. Jesus talked about it. He said the meek will inherit the earth. When is that going to happen? It's certainly not going to happen while guys like Hitler are running around. It's going to happen when he makes it happen. But who's inheriting the earth? The meek are inheriting the earth. Which totally just, just messes with our perception of what kings look like. Because we've been ruined by bad leadership in our lifetime. And in every lifetime before ours. We've seen kings and rulers. He says these are what the Gentiles do. We've been ruled by Gentiles. Who think what it means to rule is to dominate. And the only way we keep them from being corrupted by power is to put enough checks and balances in place that they can't do what they want to do. But it's not so in his kingdom. You know, if you read the Old Testament, God doesn't resign himself to say, well, you're human, you'll always be bad. He actually tells them, kings, this is what I'm looking for. He's looking for humility. He's looking for servants. He's looking for those that will protect the ones who can't protect themselves. He's looking for those that will seek out wisdom. He's looking for those that will seek and ask for understanding. And these are the things he's looking for in someone that's going to rule. Could it be that following Jesus right now is preparing you for what you're going to need in the next life? And every opportunity I have and every opportunity you have, and we come across it, maybe it presents itself as not an opportunity, but a great challenge, a great problem. Maybe these things that you're forced to overcome right now, that you're dealing with right now, that, you're, that are in front of you, whether they be an adversity or an opportunity, either way, whatever they are, they're training you. Jesus is training you for what you're going to need. And it's more... It's more than just puffy clouds. It's ruling and reigning with him. 
if we endure with him, we will reign with him. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Hebrews says this, and I don't want to get too far into it, but he says, um, well, you know what? Let me read it to you real quick. In, in the first chapter of Hebrews, you recall that he quotes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. Some translations says a little lower than God. And while you could definitely make that case, um, I think that whoever wrote Hebrews put it in the Greek as a little lower than the angels. So I tend to trust that translation because it's in the scripture. Um, but when he says a little lower than the angels, you can take this two ways. Is he talking about like physically lower, like they're in the heavens, we're here? Possibly. But I like what my translation says in Hebrews. It says, for a little while, lower than the angels. And who is he primarily talking about? He's, in Hebrews, it's talking about Jesus, right? Because he says Jesus was for a little while lower than the angels, but now he's crowned with glory. Right? He lowered himself. He humbled himself. How did he become crowned with glory? How, why was he given the name above all names? Why was he given the position of ultimate authority? Because he humbled himself. Became a bondservant. See, these are the principles that Jesus taught us. He was looking for in leaders. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 1. He says, and he goes on and he talks about, he's comparing um, uh, Jesus to the angels, but he, but he makes some comments about us. He's, he talks about to which of these did he call his son? To which of these did he he say, uh, you are my begotten, today I've begotten thee. You are my son, today I've begotten thee. But look at, the, look at this in verse 13. He says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? He's talked about before this, uh, that he made the world, he appointed the things to come. In fact, there's a scripture that says that he has not only, that all these things belong to you. He says, we belong to you. He says, the earth belongs to you. He says, life and death belong to you. Even things to come belong to you. I know we're cramming a lot of information at the same time. But it's important that we process this now because this is changing how we approach life right here in 2018. How I approach life in 2018 has to be framed by what I'm preparing myself for. Because if I think this is the end, this is the big show, this is it, and then after this is just dessert, I'm going to miss out on why this is happening, the importance of this. And I'm going to coast through life saying, all I'm trying to do is make it to the end. I just can't wait to die because then I get to experience the good stuff. It will be good. It'll be wonderful. But it's more than just let's play after. You're being prepared for a role. You're being prepared for a task. I love this in, in, in the scripture. In Colossians chapter 2. Actually, sorry. Of course, known to put on the new self. Sorry, Colossians chapter 3. It says, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead. And he goes on through all these things that you should be dead to. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. It says all creation is groaning for what? Our revealing as sons. The world is waiting for us to be who God created us to be. And Jesus died and rose again to make a way for that to happen. And right now, you're, in the, you're on the mezzanine. You're in the middle of it. 
Right now, you're preparing for the next one. Right now, we have a job to do. Preach the gospel, right? To all the earth. To be a light in dark places. To become more like Jesus every day. We're being raised. We're being trained for something. I want to read you the rest of what he says in Revelation as we close. He says, I'm going to give you authority over nations. I'm going to give you the authority over the nations. He says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. The vessel of the potter are broken to pieces. As also I've received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. What does he mean by the morning star? I've heard somebody say, well, the morning star isn't that Lucifer. He'll give us Lucifer. Uh, I don't think that's what he means. And the reason I think is because he uses this term. I, he never uses the term morning star after, after that, that verse in Isaiah for Lucifer again. He doesn't call him Lucifer again. He calls him Satan. He calls him the devil. All throughout the book of Revelation, he's called the dragon. He's called Satan. He's called the devil. He's never called by that nice name again. But you know who is called the morning star in the book of Revelation? Jesus. I believe that's what he's talking about. I'll give you the morning star. Now, Peter talks about a morning star, which means he talks about until that morning star dawns, until the, we, we get the full light of revelation. But it's a different Greek word for morning star. In Revelation, it's the same one as he refers to himself. I'm the morning star. I believe what Jesus is saying is, if you overcome, you keep my deeds now. You receive my kingdom and you receive me. He's our portion. He's our prize. He's our reward. He's our highest thing. I mean, this is it. He's everything we ever need. He's everything we've ever desired. He offers you himself. He offers you a place in his kingdom, but he offers you more than that. He offers you the king. He says, I will give him the morning star. And I believe this means he's going to give us himself. We inherit him as well. I want to urge you as you're going back to your houses, when you get out your Bibles, go through the, you know, maybe go through your, if you've got a chain reference, or if you've got a concordance, look up when he says, you'll re- you rule and reign with me. It says it a few times in the book of Revelation. You're going to get different pieces of that as, as you go through. And you understand there's probably different levels of authority. There's different levels of ruling and reigning. Just as there was when Jesus gave the talents to the three people. There were different levels that he entrusted them with. And the ones that were faithful with this were entrusted with more. Consider this. This is what I want to leave you with. Have you considered that what you have right now is what you've been trusted with? If you're faithful with that, you'll be given more in this life. But in the one to come, would you be able to look at life like this is preparing me for something? This isn't the end. This is not the hard part, and then after is just a cakewalk. Afterward will be wonderful. Uh, There's no picture Jesus paints of the next life that's ever bad or hard. It's wonderful. But you know we were created for work. Adam was given a garden before there was ever sin. The garden was not part of the curse. The part of the curse were the thorns in the garden. The hardship, the, the, the sweat of your brow. It'll be hard for you to work the garden. The garden in itself was a blessing. This is why when you don't do anything with your life and and, and you just sit around and you're lazy and everybody's doing something for you, you're not really satisfied because you weren't created for for laying around doing nothing. We were created for a task. I was created to work. That's a good thing. I'm like my father. I've been created in his image. He's a creator. I don't mean to blow your minds even a little bit more, but you know, maybe it is that, that somehow you're given a, a role, a, a place of authority that, that involves creating on some level. You never become the capital C creator, but we've all been created in his image and we create even now, don't we? Even in a cursed world, we're creating things because we're like our father. We were created in his image. And we're not like the beasts of the field. We're created in his image. We're the only one that he breathed his spirit into. He's going to make all things new. 
He's creating a new heaven, a new earth. And like I said, who knows what else? But I know we don't even have, I mean, even our scientists are, are blown away by the fact that we're aware that other things exist, but we can't even come close to seeing them because they're so far out there. But they tell us that the universe is still expanding because God said, let there be light. He said, let there be life. And he never said, stop. And his word just keeps going out to the fringes of the universe, creating new things. And I believe he wants these things to be governed. And of course, he can govern them. But why did he create man? God can rule everything by himself, but he's shown all throughout the scripture, he doesn't want to. He created us. Not saying you're going to rule on Mars. Only thing I can promise you is that he's prepared a new heaven and a new earth and that I'm part of it. And I want to be entrusted in the next life based on what I do in this life. The fact, the reason I'm saved is, is not through my own work, thank God. Um, I wasn't saved by my work. I won't be saved through my work. But he says here, whoever keeps my deeds, it's different. In the past, he said, keeps my word, keeps my faith. Here, he said, whoever keeps my works. Uh, will overcome. I think there's a piece of that. Whoever keeps my, sorry, he says, whoever comes, whoever keeps my works, my deeds, to him I'll trust him with authority. I believe that 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that there'll be people who are saved who did nothing, have nothing to show for their life when, when they stand before Jesus, but his mercy is so big that they were saved because they had faith in him beautiful, right? And I don't think they'll be sad. I think they'll, they'll rejoice just like the rest of us. But I do think that when he says, you had work and it remained, Paul said, I know there's a crown waiting for me. I think that crown means something. I think it means more than just one day I'm going to rejoice and then every, after that the, 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 the slate is washed clean. I think it means that he has some, he's trusted with something in the next life. I can't pretend to imagine all of that, but I, I do know this. It wouldn't bring it up so much in Scripture if it weren't important. So I just want to take that to heart. Everything you do here has an effect. And I want to say this one more thing as we close. What we do has an effect, and yet we should never try to step out of the grace of God to do it. Paul said, His grace towards me was not in vain, but I worked harder than everyone else. But it was not me working, it was the grace of God working through me. The worst thing you can do is just take this as, I need to try harder, I need to work harder in my own strength, because you know what, unless the Lord builds the house, we waste our time. It's got to be by his grace. It's what God wants to do through you, so it's really living a surrendered life. And I want you to ask yourself these questions. What's God looking for in a king or a queen? Because if you read through the scripture, it's not what you think. He's not looking for somebody that's really good with money. He's not necessarily looking for somebody that's really good at bossing people around. What he's looking for is humility. What he's looking for is a servant. What he's looking for is someone who's seeking wisdom and understanding. What he's looking for is, is a heart that can be trusted. He's gonna entrust the earth with the meek. So I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, let's let him transform us. Let's let Christ be formed in us, amen? Stand with me, let's pray.